Hi there and welcome to another Rossler podcast. My name's Todd Fraser and in this podcast series we interview leading clinicians, characters and troublemakers who are changing the face of clinical healthcare. On today's podcast I'll be chatting to Dr Michael Toulis. Michael recently published a paper in Critical Care and Resuscitation which detailed the results of a binational survey of intubation practices in the intensive care unit. Michael is currently an ICU fellow at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne and will be completing the Kickham transition year at the end of this year. His interests include ICU airway management and echocardiography and by his own declaration is an enthusiastic yet average golfer. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Todd. It's a real uh, pleasure to get to talk to you. So, yeah, thanks for the invitation. Michael, um, what do we know about intubation in the critical care environment? It's obviously different from standard anaesthetic practice, but how different? Well, this is an area that's been studied um, really for quite some time, um, but fairly ad hoc in multiple countries by multiple different people. Probably the landmark big study that looked at this or data collection was the NAP4 in the UK in 2011. And generally what we know is that if bad things are going to happen to you when you're intubated, it's going to be in ICU. Um, some more rigid statistics are that, you know, we, we, we find complications at 22 to 54% more likely in the intensive care setting compared to the operating theatre and that about 1.6 to 2.1% of people die on induction in ICU. Um, so there's pretty startling statistics um, around this. And your major adverse complications, hypoxia, hypoxia encephalopathy, cardiac arrest are all, all much higher. What are the current strategies that are being proposed to make this process safer? After the NAP4 came out, um, a group of anaesthetists, mainly with uh, Tim Cook and Higgs in the UK, they got together with the uh, College of Anaesthetists, Intensive Care Society and the Difficult Area Society in the UK, and they put together a document that's about 20-odd pages uh, and endorsed by the Difficult Area Society that looked at this problem and made a heap of recommendations. Um, their recommendations were to start off by saying that, you know, critically ill patients are a special circumstance. They're a unique population. Um, they spoke about optimising the environment, optimising positioning. They had a lot more of an emphasis on team briefing, checklist, training, um, not always using cryocode pressure, choice of hemodynamically stable induction agents. So rather than just big doses of propofol or smaller doses of propofol, but using drugs such as ketamine, they spoke about early use of video laryngoscopy. Um, they spoke about and recommended always using neuromuscular blockade, uh, spoke about the use of apneic oxygenation uh, and other techniques such as delayed sequence intubation. But one of the other big things that they had a real emphasis on was... Um, just team planning and actually acknowledging that these patients are more difficult, more challenging. They also spoke about, um, which was quite controversial, was that they made recommendations of using the scalpel bougie technique for a cricothyrotomy compared to the needle cricothyrotomy technique. So let's talk about some of those concepts for just a moment. Things like checklists get debated quite frequently but are variably yes. applied in this environment. They're obviously recommended yes. and they're based on aviation practice. What is the evidence yes. base surrounding some of that? Good question. So that, this has been studied fairly well. There was a study on this uh, two to three years ago, a randomised control trial, looking at the use um, of checklists compared to not using checklists. 
And although it may improve things like team dynamics and communications and it may give people a sense of um, control and predictability during intubation, um, it hasn't actually translated to better outcomes for patients. It hasn't translated to less deaths. It hasn't necessarily translated to um, less hypoxemia or hypotension. So although they're great in theory, and I think there is a role for them, they haven't quite translated into better outcomes on paper for patients. My feeling would be that they are a good thing, um, but I think the, the benefits uh, will occur in a, in a small set of patients, uh, so they might not be getting picked up or discovered in a, an RCT of a smaller size. With regard to pre-oxygenation strategies, there's a number of different techniques that have um, embedded themselves in our practice in recent years. What are the current recommendations yeah. around this? Um, the DAS guidelines out of the UK that were focused specifically on the um, tracheal intubation in the critically ill patients, they recommend fairly conventional strategies for pre-oxygenation. Um, they recommend the three minutes of um, 100% oxygen flying at 10 to 15 litres a minute. Um, however, they add in some other things that may not have been considered traditional um, practice. So they also recommend that non-invasive ventilation, actually hooked up to a ventilator, is a reasonable, acceptable, and effective way to provide pre-oxygenation. Um, additionally, though, they also mention using apneic oxygenation as well added on. So there's, there's um, some people now that are, during their pre-oxygenation phase, actually applying high-flow nasal cannula at the same time and then retaining those nasal cannula during laryngoscopy attempts. Is there any sort of evidence to support these techniques in practice? Um, I think standard pre-oxygenation prior to any induction, well, particularly in the critical ill, does have good evidence for it. Um, there's, there's studies going back with graphs that most people would have seen of, you know, deoxygenation curves with respect to time in children, the well adult, obese adult, and the unwell adult. So standard pre-oxygenation is uh, well established in all of the anaesthetic literature. Um, apneic oxygenation, though, is not so well established. Um, that's quite a new, uh, I guess, in vogue sort of a technique. Um, my review of the literature in preparing the, uh, the survey we did is that there does appear, though, to be a, um, a, a signal that apneic oxygenation is of benefit to patients. Um, people suggest that patients with a significant amount of pulmonary shunt are unlikely to benefit, um, but there are studies, and there's a small meta-analysis of that which was actually done in New South Wales, um, which shows that there is a benefit for delaying hypoxemia in these patients. And the way that the investigators looked at that was to look at the lowest saturations during the, um, the peri-intubation period after apnea in patients that have had apneic oxygenation compared to those who don't. Um, however, there's plenty of other RCTs going around that are showing that it isn't any benefit. Um, my feeling is, after looking at literature, that it probably is a benefit, in patients that don't have shunt. And for the amount of effort and the amount of risk involved, I think it's probably worthwhile. Um, another pre-oxygenation strategy that the um, DAS guidelines also endorse, um, which I think is um, fairly new and new, new new and unique compared to other guidelines, is the actual concept of the delayed sequence intubation, um, i.e. using small doses of ketamine to facilitate non-invasive ventilation to allow patients to be pre-oxygenated. Um, I haven't seen that in any other guidelines, and I thought that was um, 
quite a unique um, position to to come about. Um, that's not particular. Uh, that's not actually a technique backed by a huge amount of evidence. There was a small um, perspective uh, trial done by the investigators themselves um, in the states, which did show some benefit, and it also prevented some intubations. Um, but certainly, in my own practice, I've found that to be a useful technique for preoxygenation. Michael, one of the other really important changes to our practice in the last few years has been the introduction of video laryngoscopy. Where does that currently sit in the spectrum of what we should be doing? Where does video laryngoscopy fit in the spectrum? Well, again, disappointingly, um, so there's been quite a few studies on video laryngoscopy. And, and what I'll say is this first, sorry, is the DAS guidelines um, are saying that you should always have a video laryngoscope with you. They're not suggesting that it should be used first time. But they're saying if you have any trouble after the first attempt, you should you should use it. Um, personally, I would use it all the time first go. Uh, but they, that, that's the position of the, the DAS guidelines for the critically ill patients. Um, now, in terms of studies, it's been studied really quite extensively now, multiple RCTs. The, the, the signal that's coming out of all of the data in the anaesthetic operating theatre environment, the emergency department, and intensive care units, I think even pre-hospital environment, is that um, generally speaking, you get about one grade better view on a cormac lehane scale with a video laryngoscope compared to conventional blades. And that's great. I like to have the extra view. I think that's a good thing. However, what it hasn't translated to is easier tube passage and improved first-pass success. So it's a piece of the puzzle, um, but it hasn't necessarily translated to um, better things for patients. Michael, you obviously went ahead and performed the study um, or a survey looking at intubation practices across Australasia. Why did you do that? What was the impetus for, for conducting it? Yeah, well, I, I've i always been interested in airway management, and I think if you work in intensive care, that um, probably is common for a lot of people. Um, you know, it is something that often people get a bit nervous about, and it's a bit can be a bit mysterious that these patients are so well and can do so poorly. Um, so I was sort of just following some of the literature myself and um, and noting that there was variation amongst people. I was noting that some consultants that I Work with insisted on always using succinothionium, whereas others insisted on using rocuronium, for example, or different induction agents or different pre-oxygenation techniques. So I began to sort of follow this literature myself. Um, and in late 2018, or sorry, late 2017, the DAS produced guidelines for the management of tracheal intubation in critically ill adults. And this was produced by um, a lot of the people that were behind the NAP4 study. And I found it just a really fascinating read. I found it a very fascinating read. I found it a very practical read that had a lot of um, good advice and things that I'd been reading about previously within them um, and it had an extensive literature review. So when I saw this set of guidelines, um, I was quite excited, um, but I, I remember asking myself, you know, well, what are we doing locally? Um, do we have our own guidelines like this here in, here in Australia and New Zealand? Um, and if not, should we have our own? And that was really where I um, where I, I, I came about with the idea for the survey was that I wanted to know if people are actually doing what these guidelines are suggesting, and I wanted to know if not, um, maybe we should have our own set of guidelines that reflects um, local practice. 
Um, Michael, you, um, how did you go about performing the study and what did you learn from it? Well, the first thing was that I assembled uh, the help of some friends. So I got a lot of help from um, Cameron Green, who is a research coordinator at Frankston Hospital, Ravi Turvapati, Ashwin Subramaniam and John Botha. They'd all had a lot more experience in um, doing any form of studies compared to me. So I bounced the ideas off of them and they thought it was a, a, a reasonable and achievable sort of a goal. Um, then as a group, we um, appray, or we, we reviewed the, the, the DAS guidelines for interventionally critically ill and we came up with a set of questions. We then piloted those questions amongst um, anaesthetists in the Department of Anesthesia at Frankston Hospital and got some really good feedback on um, word choicing um, in creating the survey. And that was one of the interesting things about creating the survey was to make the survey um, in a way that the questions were not in themselves suggestive to people reading the questions. Um, after we did that, we got ethics reviews from the hospital ethics board. Um, and then after that, I approached ANZIX and asked them to send out the survey to all of their uh, members and they were very kind uh, in that they actually did that with a with a reminder email for me. Um, we left the survey open for about a month, and we had our results, which um, took a few weeks to review, and then we prepared the manuscripts. What was the population involved? Who were we talking about here who were responding to the survey? The So the, 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 the survey itself was sent out to all ANZIC medical members, and of that, at the time, there were about 756 medical members. Now, we're unsure of how many of those were paediatrics, paediatric intensivists, but they were excluded from the, from, from the study results. So we ended up with a response in total from 27% of um, ANZIX members. And the interesting demographics were that 80% were male, 80% were based in metro areas, and about a quarter of them, or 24%, were also anaesthetists. So they were probably, probably some of our key demographic data. Um, so, yeah, mainly metro hospitals, tertiary hospitals, was male intensivists. And you included um, non-consultants in this sto- uh, survey as well? We did. So it was sent out to all medical uh, members of ANZIX. Um, trainees were part of that. Um, from memory, they represented about 20% of respondents. Michael, one of the striking features of this was the number of intubations that uh, the respondents believed that they were involved in. What can you tell us yeah, about that? Yeah, We asked respondents, we said, how many intubations do you think you do each year and how many do you supervise per year? Because the actual doing of the intubation is one thing, but actually supervising and being part of the, the planning and the management of, of difficulties is also very um, important. And I think they go hand in hand. Um, the data we got from that was actually really quite interesting. So the average intensivist or respondent to our survey um, locally is doing about 10 intubations a year, so just under one a month. Uh, on the other hand, they're supervising about 20 a year. So that's probably 25 to 30 actual intubation events per year or one a, one a fortnight. Um, this is quite similar or very similar to the results that um, David Brewster had in a study that came out in 2018 as well. The nature of the survey that you performed obviously leaves this data subject to recall bias. Does it marry up against other reviews on this subject of of real data that's collected prospectively uh, against a registry, for example? 
Well, I can say this. That I don't know the answer to that. I haven't actually compared our findings to prospective data that's out there. Um, and to be honest, in the intensive care world, there's actually quite a paucity of such data, and that's something we did look at. Uh, the very few units are actually, or I think about 40% of units are actually collecting data. Um, but we didn't actually, we haven't actually compared that. But I can tell you that the, the figures that we were getting um, were very similar to a study performed by Dave Brewster uh, about 18 months earlier than ours uh, on the volume of practice. Um, Michael, what were some of the important findings from the survey? Okay. Um, well, our primary, the primary outcome that we had or that we really wanted to find out was um, do local intensivists want guidelines for ICU intubations in Australia and New Zealand? That was the main thing that, that I wanted to find out. And then as a follow-on to that, I wanted to sort of extend the work that, that Dave Brewster did and I wanted to find out if local intensivists wanted mandatory airway management training. So they were the real key things, um, and we found um, that 61% of the respondents agreed or strongly agreed that they think that uh, local Australian New Zealand guidelines would be a good thing and would improve patient safety. Uh, so I found that interesting. And in terms of airway management guideline formation, uh, sorry, in terms of mandatory ongoing training for intensivists, um, it was quite a strong signal that 80% of respondents agreed or strongly agreed that there should be mandatory airway management training ongoing for fellows of the College of Intensive Care. So I thought they were pretty important um, outcomes. So it certainly seems that there's support within the industry for doing exactly that and, and including regular refresher training and, and standardising uh, uh, training at the undergraduate level or the trainee level. What do you think that this should entail? That's a hard one. That is a hard one. Um, I would start off by saying that there does look like there's a good signal that people want mandatory training for intensivists, uh, and that is a very, very similar um, sort of number or, or level of agreement that um, David Brewster's group got about two years ago. So people seem as though they, they do want this. Um, the next challenge would be, though, is how do you do it and who rolls it out, who sets the rules, so to speak, um, and how is it monitored? Um, now, that I don't have the answer to. Um, a logical way to do it would be um, that perhaps Kickham or Anzix had a requirement. Uh, that could be one option, uh, but I suppose to do that, you'd probably need an airway special interest group. I'm sure there are other ways, but that might be one way that, that, it, that it could be achieved. One of the other fascinating parts of this was the uh, the demonstration of the wide variety of practice, even against the backdrop of a, a set of recommendations produced by the uh, Difficult Airway Society. How do you interpret that, and do you think that that variation is something that should be standardised and eliminated, or is it something that's healthy for, for our practice? I think the variation in practice is um, um, a good thing. Not necessarily a good thing, but I think it reflects reality. Um, I think... There are many ways to skin a cat, um, and I think that's what it, re that, that, that's what it reflects. Um, but I think within that, there's probably a few things which are um, that need to be probably things that people agree on. So I think pre-oxygenation shouldn't be something that has a variation in practice. I think that should be done all the time. I think using end-tidal capnography, again, shouldn't be something that is variation in practice. I think that is something that should be used all the time. Um, but in terms of... Um, 
more than that, it's, it's hard to say. You also made the point in the study that uh, most units don't collect data routinely on intubation. Do you think this should become the standard? And if so, what data would you suggest is being collected? I think it's worthwhile. Um, and the DAS guidelines for the management of the critically ill airway do suggest that this is something that's worthwhile. Um, the sort of data that I'd be collecting would be indication um, for the actual intubation, equipment used, Macintosh, Blay, radiolaryngoscope, whether it was used, adjuncts such as bougies, were they used, yes or no, drug doses. And other important things, really important things, uh, were, you know, whether adverse events, um, major hypoxemia, cardiac arrest, severe hemodynamic compromise, cormac lehane view. Um, I think they're fairly important uh, piece of data collect, to collect and that would allow volume of practice to be established and to look for relationships between, um, you know, less optimal outcomes with certain um, precipitants. Michael, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's a fascinating article and I certainly recommend it to anybody listening. Um, it's uh, full of insights into what's happening in the real world and also some reminders of things that we should consider including in our practice. So thanks very much for your time. Oh, fantastic. Thank you very, very much for having me. It really is a, a real pleasure and a, a bit of an honour to get, to get asked to, to, to get to talk about it. So thank you very, very much. Thanks very much, Michael. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. For this and other fantastic interviews, please visit our website at osla.force.com.